Thanks, guys. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab one of those pew Bibles, um, I'm going to be reading a couple passages out of the book of Judges today. And you, the first one's going to be on page 373, which is going to be Judges 2 for those of you who have your own Bible. Sorry, I'm a little bit of a wiry mess here. Um, if, if you're new with us, we're doing a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, where we're seeking to see the gospel that is Jesus and the dynamics of how we come to God through Christ in the Old Testament, where Jesus' name isn't explicitly mentioned except for once. Um, when his name is explicitly prophesied hundreds of years before he's born. But we'll, we'll get to that sometime. Um, but Jesus said the whole Old Testament was about him, right? And so, we'll, and so because that's kind of a long series, what we've done is we've split it up into some shorter series. And this one we're doing right now is called The Kingdom, The Rise and Fall. Of a nation, and it's about the Israelites between the Exodus, leaving slavery in Egypt, and the exile, where they lose the land that God gives them, and they go into a different phase of their existence. Um, and we get into other books that were written during that time. Now, um, last week I talked about the book of Joshua and the Israelites coming out of Egypt and being sent into the Promised Land to fight these nations, which God referred to as seven nations bigger and stronger than you. And he sent them there because, to do two things. One, he wanted to give Israel rest and give them a homeland. They'd been waiting 500 years for a homeland. And he was simultaneously judging the people who already lived in that land, the Canaanites. And he had been waiting 500 years for them to be so wicked beyond doubt that they deserved everything that they were going to get. In fact, when you read the book of Judges, there's actually a, a place where one of, the, one of the lead kings of the Canaanites finally gets caught by the Israelites— and when they catch him, they cut off his thumbs and they cut off his big toes. You're kind of like, that's a little weird. I mean, who does that? And the guy's name is Adonai Bezek. And it says, this, he said, they fled, they chased him, they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And then this is what he said. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Meaning I did that to them because I beat all those guys. Right? Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. This book starts out with even one of the Canaanite kings recognizing that they totally had this coming, right? But the point is that as God is judging the Canaanites, he's also giving his people a land of their own. And the, the key thing that he wanted to do was actually to cleanse the land that belonged to him of the idolatry related to Baal and Asherah, which I talked about last week. And I'm, I can't—it was like a 20-minute gig. I can't get back into that right now. But they were really nasty gods of fertility and war. And um, so this, this story, the story of Judges, of Joshua, and then the book that comes after called Judges, is supposed to be—it was supposed to be the story of— the Israelification of Canaan. It was supposed to be about how Canaan, this land of paganism and child sacrifice and war and bloodthirstiness, was cleansed of those gods. And the God of truth, Yahweh God, became king and gave it to a people and gave them rest. That was what the story was supposed to be. And um, sadly, Judges is like the second or third most depressing book in the Bible. And one commentator referred to the story of Judges as the canonization of Israel. Oops, sorry. The canonization of Israel. That is, this isn't the story about how Israel became Israel. And the, 
and that the, the paganism and idolatry left it, it's actually a story about how when Israel came in, they didn't drive out the idolatry and it infected them, just like God said it would over and over again when he warned them and very carefully instructed them. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a play in three parts that's a tragedy. When I was studying Western Civ, that, Western Civ was kind of my gig at university, and there's this, there's this saying this, from the Latin poet Horace that's decently well-known for people who Western Civ is their gig. He said once in a cheeky Latin phrase, Captive Greece captured her rude conqueror, that is Rome. Historically, what actually what happened was you had the Greek Empire, Rome was in the ascendancy, um, and, and Greece was in the decline, and Rome took over Greece, right? Because Rome had the bigger army and they won militarily. But what happened was what was called the Hellenization of Rome. That is, Rome basically just took Greek culture that they were totally infatuated with and just made it their culture, and they just changed some names. So if you go through, like, the Roman pantheon of gods, almost all of them have, like, new Latin names, but they're all Greek gods, and all the stories are all the Greek stories. Same thing with the art. They just went, and they just grabbed art in Greece and put it on boats and took it back to Rome. They took philosophy, and they're like, we're philosophers too, right? They took the Greek teaching on rhetoric, and they incorporated it. People like Seneca incorporated it in Roman life. And so even though Rome was the conqueror, Rome became Greek. They just spoke Latin. Now, in some ways, in Western Civ, we kind of go hurrah because Greece was the greater culture, most people in Western Civ think. And so that was a good thing. But the opposite is true of Israel. Israel militarily was winning. They come in the book of Joshua and they win. God is with them. And yet, they don't drive out the idolatry and culturally, that takes them over. And they, became, they, be, they become the very thing that they went in to destroy. And one of the things that's important to recognize in this is that if you look at the Greek plays, one of the things that tends to be true about them is there's a character in it, and the character has some kind of tragic flaw. In, in Greek, Aristotle called this the hamartia, which is interesting because that is one of the words for sin in the New Testament. Hamartia is probably the most predominant word for sin in the New Testament. Um, but in Aristotle's day, it meant, it, it meant missing the mark. It meant, like, if you're shooting at a target and there was a bullseye and your thing hit here, you missed the mark. It was, a, it was a flaw. It wasn't fundamentally immoral, but it was off. And if you're off this much at 20 yards, how much are you off at 500? Quite a lot. Because the issue in the moral philosophy of the day was moral trajectory. So you could have a flaw that wasn't all that bad— but if it was off trajectory, you get down the road to Act 3 of the play, and it's producing some terrible things. And in, in some ways, that's exactly what happens to judges. That's one of the reasons why God says, be careful to do everything written in this book of the law. Be careful to drive out the Canaanites completely. Make sure that you destroy every idol and every pole. Make sure all the remnants of that worship are gone, because otherwise, he says, they'll be a snare to you. They will catch you. And then you'll get canonized, man. It'll be bad. If you look at the book of Judges, it starts out in the first— um, wait, let me drop back for a second. So here's a cheeky way to say that. Failure in, in the moral and spiritual realm. Now, this isn't always true in economics and getting work done and blah, blah, blah at work, but in— in morality and in spirituality, and as they fuse together, 
the failure to be complete, the failure to complete what must be done, leads to complete failure. You do 95% of it. And sometimes at work, that's great. You have to leave off 5% and get on the next thing. In terms of workflow, that's not always true. But in terms of what's morally and spiritually true, to not complete is to set yourself up for complete failure. And here's why. Because the issue of worship is exactly the same. The mentality that will allow you to leave off the last 5% in omission is the exact same mentality that down the road, when the mark gets out to 500 yards, will allow you to commit any sin of commission that you would have thought unimaginable at this point. Ultimately, if you will leave off 5% or do anything else, it is ultimately the idea that I have the right to do it. That the, the one who is king isn't fully king. It's, it's the same reason I was, I, I was talking with a, our accountant. There was an accountant doing a, a full church audit. Every three years we do a total church audit to, to find out who's stealing so we can get it. I'm just kidding. No, so we do a full church audit, right? So I went out to lunch with the head accountant and her assistant and a couple of our, one of our financial people and Walt, who's in charge of finance. And she, and she said this, listen. She said, listen, every, every financial embezzler, embezzler was once a trusted employee. That's true. Because they would have been handling money in the first place if they weren't a trusted employee. But listen, that person didn't just come to work one day and decide to steal a bunch of money. But they didn't, they didn't live completely morally and spiritually whole. And when you leave off that 5%, you've started it. It's amazing. The minute you won't finish the deal, you'll let some kind of corruption come in. You told most of the truth, but it wasn't really true, and you know it. Be very careful with that. I remember when I was, um, when I was a teenager, um, there was this thing that happened at my house, and my friends were there, and they did something my parents didn't want. I'm not going to get into it right now. And my parents asked me specifically—it wasn't that. Um, my parents specifically asked me, um, what happened, Right? And so I was like, well, this is what happened. And it was like 87% true, right? And I, then I was like, because ah. at this point, I was a senior in high school at this point, and I was like starting to actually be a Christian a little bit. And I just was conscience struck. And so I went back and I was like, okay, so I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't totally come clean here. So here's the whole story. And I told them 95%, right? And then I went away. And I just, I, it was worse, then it was worse. I was like, oh, oh. And I realized, like, I realized I was at a, at a choice. And listen, you should realize this choice. Every time it happens to you, there's a choice when that happens. You either say, shut up to your conscience, or you go and tell the other 5%. And listen, guys, that may sound like a very small thing. That is the choice between life and death, idolatry and Jesus. It's, it's the choice. And I remember I was like, I go, I go like trudging back into the kitchen. My parents kind of look at me like, um, what's going to happen now? Did you, what happened? And so I went back and I just, I told them the other 5%. I was like, and I'm sorry that I didn't tell you the first time. And I'm sorry that I didn't tell you the second time. But I don't know. But something had to happen, right? I had to want their approval more than my friends. And I could never prove that to myself until I told them everything, Right? And I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to tell the truth or not tell the truth. You see, a, a small omission is still idolatry, right? And so, that's how it rolls. And you go, well, I'll never go there. Listen, 
A failure to complete tends to complete failure in the realm of what's spiritually and morally true. And this is what comes up even in the prologue, even in the beginning of the book of Judges. We know this. Because it's, it starts out with a recap of what happened in Joshua, and he's talking about this, and then he, and then he, he talks about some wonderful victories. He talks about the guy with the thumbs and the toes, and then it says this. It says, the Benjamites, one of the 12 tribes, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites, one of the tribes, who are living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live with the Benjamites. So, so Judges is probably written 50 or 60 years after the time period, and so when there's a king in Israel. And, th- and at that point, so, so anyway, that's before David, right? Because what Jerusalem is called the city of David because David is the guy who finally drives out the Jebusites, right? So this is before David, but it's after the main judges, right? So then it says Manasseh. This is another tribe. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan, but that's one of the big walled cities, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblim, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements. So even the towns they didn't go after. For the Canaanites were determined to live in the land, right? Determined in a way is a comparative, isn't it? More determined than who? In a contest, if somebody says, well, they won because they were determined, what does that mean? If we said, listen, UW won because we were determined to win, you'd be like, who are we playing? Hopefully Michigan State, right? You know, we're more determined, and so we won because we were determined to win against them, right? And then it says this. This is a very important sentence. When Israel became strong— they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. What does that mean? If you can force somebody to work as your slave, what can you also do? Drive them out. So the Israelites became, clearly became powerful enough, but they, the Canaanites were just more useful as slaves than they were as not being there. And so they just, wait, they, they mostly obeyed, right? They subdued them. They corralled them. They, they had it all under control, right? But listen, morally and spiritually speaking, when it comes to God, one of the things we have to know about human nature is that a failure to, to do it completely tends to lead to complete failure. Sins of omission have this strange but fairly predictable pathway to sins of omission or commission. Does that make sense? And it's one of the lessons we have to learn about ourselves. In Judges 2, this is on page 373, it says what the result of that was. So I'm going to read 23 verses here, so you want to follow along. 373, this is Judges 2, starting in verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called the place Bochim, which means in Hebrew, place of weeping. And there they offered sacrifice to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. 
Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Correction from last week, not 120. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnaharez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither who knew neither the Lord nor what they had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and, for, and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods who worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them, and they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died— the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant which I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Now, if, if you're confused about why God would be kind of mean and predict failure like that, I just want to refer you back to my July 28th sermon where I spent 30 minutes talking about that. I'm not going to do that right now. But one of the things that this evidence is, is those failures, the failure to drive out completely, and the kind of shallow repentance, right? It's like 85% repentance. Oh God, we're really sorry. Let's do some sacrifices. But then clearly not, not all the way, right? And let me just tell you something about repentance. Repentance is one of those gigs that if you don't go 100%, you flop right back. You either cut that thing out of the root and say, listen, I am done with this. I was totally wrong. The minute you start being like, well, I'm kind of sorry I made you feel that way, and, you know, I maybe could have done it a little bit. Like, the other day I was repenting to Alexi, and I said, I said that unartfully. That really happened. Right? That's not generally what—that's not textbook repentance. Right? I had, to, I had to repent again after that. I don't know what it is about me in multiple times, but whatever. So— if we recognize that in terms of things spiritual and moral and things in terms of repentance that a failure to complete leads to complete failure, and when you read this passage about a new generation rising up not knowing the Lord or what he'd done for them, it kind of reminds you of a slide from two sermons we've already had, right? That if we want to have real, real faith that's really strong and courageous, that isn't terrified, that goes the whole distance, that doesn't fail to complete, which leads to complete failure— 
These three things have to be very focused if we're going to know who we really are, what people are like, and how we're formed. We've got to have clear choices. Remember at the end of Joshua's life, he said, listen, you've got to make a call. You've got to decide if you're in or you're out. You've got to wake up, and you've got to choose. Are you going to serve God, or are you going to serve idols? You've got to make a choice, and it's got to be clear in your head. Two, you've got to be disciplined to remember, and you've got to pass it on. And help other people remember, especially people who didn't see. N- next week, next week, I get to read an email from a family whose daughter got healed from this church praying for her. This girl's going to have her head cut open from here to here, one year old. One year old. Told us a couple weeks ago, prayed for her. Went to her next doctor's appointment, the bump on her head was just gone. She woke up in the morning, her mom picked her up, it's gone. Took her to the doctor, the doctor's like, we don't have to do the surgery. Listen, that happened. It happened, okay? And listen, you will forget about that tomorrow. You know what I mean? We'll forget about that tomorrow. It's, it's all about what have you done for me lately with Jesus, isn't it? And that disciplined remembrance is so important because only that can really drive us to careful obedience. And without careful obedience, what happens? Hamartia. Right? We don't completely obey, which leads to complete failure. Now, for those of you who aren't all that familiar with the book of Judges, let me just take you through the storyline a little bit. Now, part of my hope from this kind of a sermon is that you can go back over the next week or so and read the book of Judges for yourself and be like, oh, oh, oh. Right? Okay, so the book of Judges breaks down in three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 are the prologue. I already read you most of that. It's the intro. It's, uh, things aren't gonna— You get to the—you're you're part of the way through, and all of a sudden you're like, uh-oh, this isn't gonna go well. Right? That's what— And then chapters 3 through the end of 16 are the story of the judges. There's, there's 12 judges, but there's really mainly four that are really focused on. And then you've got some other ones that not much is said about. Like, there's this guy named Shagmar. So if I have another son, tell you what. Shagmar. No. I wouldn't do that, baby. Um, And all it says about Shagmar is, Shagmar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Right? Now, you might be from a farm and know what an ox goad is. You know, thank you, Iowa. But if you don't know what that is, it's a sharpened stick that's about that. It's longer than an ox can kick. Right? It's It's like you poke the ox so he goes. It's a goad. That's all it is. And like, he killed 600 Philistines with it and delivered Israel. And you're like, how many times did he have to resharpen that? Or, you know, it's just, you kind of you wish there was more on Shagmar. I mean, what, right? Um, but there's a number of those, but there's mainly four, right? There's Barak and Deborah, Gideon, Japheth, or Jephthah, sorry, Jephthah, and Samson, right? And they all deliver Israel, And they're all worse than the person before them. And then you get to the end, chapter 17 to 21, where it just flat plain gets weird, okay? And it's it's the end of the cycle, but it's it's designed to make things really clear that this is what I just call it the toilet bowl ending. It's not just a cycle, it's getting worse every time. And it gets down— it gets bad. And one of the ways you can see this progression is that in, e- in each of the four major sections with these four judges, there's a female character that kind of typifies having their life screwed up by how bad things are. Sometimes it's because a dude won't step. And Deborah's not one of them. 
Okay? You know, like, whenever you talk about, like, hero women of the Bible, it's like, Deborah! Deborah's awesome! Right? Deborah's a judge. She's a prophetess. She gets up a bear. She's like, we're gonna go, we're gonna fight these guys. And Barak's like, ah, no, okay, yeah, let's do it. And then they go and they win, right? And Barak's not excited enough about doing this. And so God's like, okay, listen, you're gonna get the victory and whatever, but you don't get to kill the king because that's the funnest part, and you're not gonna get that honor. So Sisera, who's the, the northwestern Mesopotamian king who's been messing with him, he's like running away, right? And he, and he, he comes to this sort of like Bedouin tent with this woman, Jael, who lives there. Apparently there's nobody else there. It's just Jael, right? And she's just like, hey, what's up? He's like, you gotta hide me. And she's like, oh, and you know, she's, she's a lady. She's not gonna be like, no, I'm not gonna hide you, Mr. Sword with armor, right? So she's like, okay. And, and so she's got a place to hide him. You know why she has a place to hide him? Because his people, the Midianites, not the Midianites, but his people, have been raiding their land for 10 or 12 years or whatever. And so what do they have? Secret compartments. Because there's raiders coming all the time. So she puts the guy in the secret compartment that they dug because of his people. <laughs> so he puts him in there. The guy's exhausted. He's like, can I have a drink? And so she gives him some milk because, you know, puts you to sleep. And she covers him over, right? And then she goes, gets a tent stake and a hammer. Waits till he falls asleep. Puts it on his head. <laughs> and kills him. Right? And then he, she comes out of the tent and here's Barak. Where's Cicero? I'm gonna get him! Right? And she's like, he's, he's in here. It's a little gross. <laughs> right? Jail should not have had to do that. She should have been protected. She should have been at rest in God's land. But instead, she was in a terrible situation. She did the best she could. Right? You go on with Gideon. Gideon wins this huge victory. But one of his sons, this guy Abimelech, is just buck nuts crazy. We'll get back to exactly why in a little, in a, in a little while. But he just starts, after, after Gideon dies, he just starts killing people. He's like, I'm going to be the man. He gets all these people together in Shechem, and they, go, they burn this city down. All the women and children go into this main tower, and they just get a bunch of fire. They just burn the whole thing down and kill everyone. He's like, let's do it again! So they go to some other place, and they're—sorry about the voice crack. And so they're going to this other place, and they, they get into the city. Same deal. All the people get in the tower. They're terrified. It's all women and children. They've done nothing to this guy. He's going to kill them all, right? So he goes and he gets the fire again. He's carrying it up, right? And you're thinking like some dude is going to come out that door with a sword or like a something and show that guy what for, right? Guess what happens? Some lady, she's got like her grinding millstone because she's afraid somebody to steal if she loses her house, right? She's got her upper millstone. She goes, she lifts this thing up and waits till Abimelech comes up to start burning things and she just drops it on his head. You think some dude who's a warrior could have figured that out? Drop something on the soldier. No. Some lady who grinds a lot of—she's like, like, this is heavy. <laughs> no, she's like, so it hits him on the head, cracks his skull. He's bleeding to death. He goes, somebody kill me or they're going to say I died by—a woman killed me. So this guy comes up and stabs him, you know. But still say a woman killed him, right? Right, then you get Jephthah. Well, things are going to go a lot better, right? So Jephthah's, you know, he—, he Anyway, so they get him, he, he, he wins the victory, right? And he, but, but before he goes out to battle, he says, God, listen, if you deliver me, I will sacrifice you as a burnt offering, the first thing that walks over the threshold of my door when I get back. Now, one commentator, um, Lawson Younger, who was a professor of mine, and hilarious, because he speaks like, he knows like 10 ancient languages, and he speaks in a southern Kentucky accent, so everybody thinks he's dumb, because they're prejudiced against southerners, and he's way smart. It's so funny. To, anyway, he's great. Anyway, so in his commentary, he, he basically writes— that's not how sacrifice to God works. 
Read the, bio, read the Torah. Read the sacrificial system. You, either God does something for you, you're thankful, and so you offer a th- sacrifice of thanks, or you did something stupid and wrong and mean and evil, and you make a sacrifice to mend the relationship and to receive atonement and forgiveness. You don't make deals. That's how pagan sacrifice works. God, if you do this for me, I'll do something for you. That's not how it's supposed to go. And so this great victory that Jephthah wins, he goes home and what's the, you know, all your pets and animals and stuff, you usually keep them there so they don't run off, right? So what's the first thing that comes out? His only, his only child who's a daughter. Right? And he doesn't go, oh, second thing. Right? He goes, well, you know, I made a vow to God. He probably wants me to fulfill it. Even though it's explicitly against the Torah to make a human sacrifice of any kind. And what does the, what does the daughter do? She's the most godly person in the whole story. She just goes, listen, do what you need to do. Let me, can I, let me mourn the fact that I'm going to die for a couple of months here and then, right? And then he kills his own daughter. And then you're like, if, that's, is that the worst it gets? No, it gets a whole lot worse. Because after Samson, who is by far the worst judge, morally speaking, you get the toilet bowl ending, in which there's two narratives about Levites. Now, who are the Levites? They're the keepers of the law, right? And they're supposed to be the people who, like, know, know what's up, right? And so both, and so when the Levites are bad, you know things are bad, right? Okay? And so I'll leave the first story, the first Levite, to one side because it's not as interesting as the second one. And so the second one, this is how, this is how the book ends, okay? There's a guy who's a Levite, and he has a concubine. So probably a younger wife-like person who doesn't have the same standing as a wife. And she runs, she goes back to her father's house. Now most of the commentators say that because of the language used about her going back to her father's house and how it says that when he went to get her, it says he spoke tenderly to her, right? That's Hebrew for the southern saying, baby, I was wrong, right? That he came and spoke tenderly to her to get her to come back. He probably beat up on her or like was terrible to her. And she's probably much younger than him. So, you know, you got some like, you know, 18 to 22 year old girl. You got some Levite guy. She's a concubine. She's not even a full wife. She runs off. He's like, yeah, I think I want her back. So he finally, like four months later, it says, he finally goes, speaks tenderly to her. Her dad's really nice to him instead of punching him in the face, right? You know, treats him really nice for five days. Finally, he's like, look, we're going back home. And so the dad's like, oh, come on, let's eat again. We'll have some fun. So finally, it's like middle of the afternoon. He's like, listen, we got to go. And the guy's like, it's too late to leave now. You should stay. And he's like, no, we're leaving, right? So he, because he's a little rash, apparently, right? So he saddles up his donkey, puts his concubine wife on a donkey, and they've got one server. The three of them head off towards where they live, right? So they get as far as about Jerusalem, but the Jebusites still live there, right? He's, and so the servant goes, let's go, let's go in Jerusalem. We'll get a place to stay. And the guy's like, we're not staying with those foreigners, right? The Levite says, we're staying with our brother Israelites. We're going to go to this other place, Gilead, right here next, near, nearby. So they go to Gilead, right? And it's Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. Except in Israel, with Israelites. So they go out to the city square. Some guy comes by, like, dude, you can't stay here. No, you gotta go to my house. They go to his house. A bunch of guys show up. They're like, give us that guy. We want to know him in the biblical sense, right? And, and what do they do, right? Again, they're, they're like, oh, here, have these women in the house because we're a bunch of coward idiots, right? And so, they, they, he, so he takes his concubine wife, the one who he made run off and went, finally spoke tenderly to after four months, and now to her own danger, takes in the middle of the day because he's rash and doesn't want to stay another night after he's already stayed five nights. He just hands her over to them. And they, I'll just say, abused her until morning. So she, so it actually says in the text of, of, of Judges, she crawls up onto the steps of the house in the morning. And he puts her on the donkey to take her back to where they live. And she just dies on the way. 
And his perfectly natural response is to cut her into 12 pieces and mail them to the tribal chiefs of the 12 tribes of Israel. At which point, the Israelites finally get mad enough to exterminate idolatry of that level. And here's the, here's the great irony of the book of Judges. They won't drive out the pagan Canaanites. And at the end, they come out in full force to exterminate a tribe of their own brothers, the Benjamites. And they almost do it. So hypocritical are they that the, five, the 600 Benjamites that actually survive, that are unmarried, need wives, but they've all taken an oath not to intermarry with their own brothers. They're intermarrying fine with the Canaanites that God explicitly told them they couldn't intermarry with, but they won't allow any Benjamites to marry. So in their hypocrisy, because they know that God isn't going to bless them if they don't let this tribe survive, they just say, hey, listen, you know where the tabernacle is at Shiloh? Well, when they, every year they worship the Lord at Shiloh, and these, these young women come out dancing before the Lord. Just hide in the vineyards and go steal one, and we won't come after you. So the, these young women who actually care enough to go to Shiloh, worship God, and love Him, they become the explicit object of being kidnapped wives for the tribe that basically they all tried to wipe out. Because, I mean, you see, this is, and this is how the book ends. And the last verse of the book is, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, or the more literal ESV version. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there's two ways you can interpret that. You can interpret that they didn't have any king, and all this is is pre-Israel king propaganda, right? So Samuel's writing this 50 years later. He's like, he's like, well, we need a king, so better write something that makes it sound like you need to have a king. So that, so that Saul and David can later say, hey, listen, you might not like me, but man, it was bad back then. Extremely unlikely. Because in the book of 1 Samuel, when the people ask for king, you know what Samuel says? He goes, listen, you can have a king if you want. He's just going to take the best of everything your whole life. He's going to take the best of your food, best of your crops, best of your daughters, best of your sons, best of your everything. Fight the best of his wars, take the best of what you have for, so he can have the best life he can have. And you can have a king. It'll be great. You'll be so free. Right? He, and, and God explicitly says to Samuel in that book, go ahead and give him a king because they haven't rejected you. You're not the king. You're just a prophet. They've rejected me as their king. Which is the other way you can interpret it. Because this isn't the first place in the book of Judges where that's stated. It's the last verse, but it's not the first time this shows up. The first time it shows up is actually at the beginning of the toilet bowl ending. It brackets off those chapters of the terrible ending of the book of Judges. It starts with, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then twice more, it just reminds us there was no king. And then the book ends with, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. I.e., nobody was morally in charge, and there was total anarchy. Now, the interpretive—I think the interpretive—there's two places where you, can, where you can say that the book gives us a theology of what the leadership was supposed to be like. One of them is in— Deborah and Barak's song. So at, in chapter 4, it talks about how Deborah and Barak win this great victory. And then there's only one poetry chapter in the book of Judges. It is the, so, the victory song of Deborah and Barak. And the very first verse in that song, the very first stanza is this. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. 
So the song starts out with, this is maximal blessing. That there were people God raised up to lead, and they led, just like they should have. And the people saw that God had raised up a leader, and they followed wholeheartedly. And we won the great victory, and therefore God should be praised, because God has done this. This is what it's supposed to look like. There are leaders that stand up and lead. People freely choose to, to follow them, and then God brings about what he wants to bring about. Now, the other one is on page 386 in your pew Bibles. It's Judges 8, 22 to 32, and it says this. The Israelites said to Gideon, so this is, so Gideon has been chosen by God. He did the fleece thing, right? And then, and then he went out and he fought the Midianites with 300 people. They defeat 120,000. He calls out all the Israelites to come and chase them all the way back to where they came from. They, they wipe them out. They get the kings. They kill the kings. Total victory. They all come back to where Gideon is from, right? And they're having this assembly. It says, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, notice this is, this is a very important verse. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Right? You see, if, if you say, well, who, wait, why are the king statements in there? Well, you got to ask yourself a question. To the author of the book of Judges, should Joshua have appointed a king? Like, why would you make that statement? There's no king in Israel. Was it because there should have been one? Should, who should have appointed one? Or so there's no mention of this. In fact, it explicitly says in the book of Deuteronomy, you're not supposed to have a king. Now then it says, if you have a king, this has to be true about him. But it says, you're not supposed to have a king. So why does the text say that? You see, Gideon says why, right here. He says, because God is supposed to be king. That's the opposite of everybody doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Everybody's their own individual king. But the Israelites were supposed to be a people who actually didn't need somebody to make them do what's right. It's a very interesting—I mean, honestly, if you were to make a list of the top ten most interesting sociological experiences, experiments in the history of the world, okay? Top ten most interesting sociological experiences in the history of the world. This has got to be in the top three, I think. Creating a people in a society in which people were— meant to be formed to do the right thing, to be good, love God and love their neighbor as themselves, and to act like it, and yet have nobody in place to make them accept each other. And to only have a person who says what's right and wrong, but doesn't execute anything, doesn't have any army, can't make anybody do anything. Just a prophet or a judge who says, we need to do this. And then the people have to choose to willingly do it. That experiment is important because that's what freedom is. You see, there's, there's, there's two ways you could see freedom. One would be everybody doing whatever's right in their own eyes. But freedom, that it's actually in the presence of justice that produces shalom, peace. Peace that is freedom and justice woven beautifully together. That can only happen when the free people are also freely good. When the, the leaders lead, and the people freely give themselves to it, and a great victory is won, and God can be praised, and they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they love their neighbors themselves, and they— And that is not what happens 
because horizontally speaking, it's evident that they fail to fully obey. They don't, they don't obey completely, and so they fail completely. But in terms of, what does that say about their hearts? What it says about their hearts is they're living in anarchy because God isn't king. They don't, God's, they don't believe God is king. And they act like it. When people don't believe God is king, they act like it all the time. And you can start with a little bit off trajectory, a little sin of omission. You can obey 97% and leave off that 3%. It's the exact same mental function. It's the same place of heart. It's, for this 3%, I'm king. But what you know darn well is if you tell 97% of the truth and there's 3% that's a lie, you really told a lie and you're 100% in control. It's anarchy. I'm God, you're God, we'll all do whatever's right in our own eyes. And what the author of Judges is saying is he's saying, here's the tragedy. The tragedy started with a failure to obey fully, which led to complete failure. And here's what that complete failure was. A complete loss of any sense of the true kingship of God. And when that happens, everybody gets a toilet bowl ending. Now, you got to ask the question then. <laughs> well, okay, well then what do we, you know, what do you do? Like, where do you go with that? I mean, what do we— Well, let me tell you another story. Briefly, and this is a book we won't get to, but about the time the Israelites were worshiping other gods, there was another woman from one of the pagan countries named Moab who married a guy who was a foreigner living in Moab who was from Israel. And um, he had a brother, and another Moabitess married that guy. And over the course of about, about three or four years or ten years or whatever, I, it doesn't explicitly say, all three men die. So her husband, her brother-in-law, and their father, dumping a relatively old mother-in-law in this woman's lap, who's an Israelite. Taboo. She's like a, she's like a foreigner immigrant mother-in-law, right? You're like, that sounds fun. The mother-in-law's name is Naomi, and she says, you know what, you guys call me Mara because, which is Hebrew for bitter. It's because God has given me a bitter life, a bitter ending. And um, she says to the two daughters-in-law, she says, listen, you guys are young enough, you're pretty enough. Just go back to your father's houses, go back to your towns, and you'll, you'll find somebody and you'll be fine. And um, one of them says, fine, I'll do that. And he goes, she goes back to where she's from. And this other girl, Ruth, it's her Hebrew name, we say Ruth, right? She says, no. And it says, it says that the one woman left, but it says that Ruth clung to Naomi or Mara. And she said, I won't leave you. Where, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I'm going to be buried there. And your God is going to be my God. And so she, these, these two, like, down-and-out women— now, let's, I mean, this is happening when all this other stuff is happening. People are getting killed. Like, you've got heroes like Samson. I mean, like, Samson's greatest feat is he went to see a prostitute. He was going to get ambushed while he was leaving the cloister place. And so instead of getting shot with arrows, he rips the doors off of the city and carries them 60 miles and drops them in Hebron. I mean, like this, I mean this, that's what life was like. I mean, it was like a woman had to drive tent stakes through people's head to get by, Okay? This was the world they were living in. And this woman 
talk about the dead weight of a angry, grieving, bad attitude mother-in-law who's a foreigner to go back with her to her country and her people knowing darn well you're going to be treated like a foreigner. And there she goes. And you know what she does? She goes out to some field and she goes through the barley that's already been harvested and she's digging through, she's digging through the, the dust and the, the shafts to look for grains that she could put in a bag so that they could try to make some bread and not starve to death. That's the life she picked for herself in the midst of all this. And what scripture says is that there's a guy riding by named Boaz and he, he saw her and he's like, what is the deal with that woman? Why is, some, why is there like some good-looking woman like digging in the dirt behind you idiots, right? And they're like, well, and they, he, tell them the, he tells them the story and he's like, and he realizes who she is and what she's done, who Naomi is, that this is part of his extended family. His, his respect goes through the roof and through a concatenation of circumstances. You can read the book of Ruth if you want to know him. He marries her, and she has a son, and his name is Obed. So whatever good you can say about Boaz, naming people wasn't probably his strong point. Um, But Obed has a son named Jesse, and then Jesse has a son named David, the great king, the one, the one great king of Israel, who then God would say, there will be one. There will be one true king that will come from your line that will be king over all forever. And all these lesser kings, all these little judges, all these guys will no, will no longer be necessary or they will have a greater leader. Which is kind of funny because right when Pilate was about to send Jesus off to be crucified, Jesus said something and Pilate goes, I knew it. So you're saying you're a king then. And Jesus said, you're right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify about the truth. Now why isn't that a weird change of subject? Right? He's testifying to the truth. What is that truth? The truth is, is that he's king. That's the truth. He's the undisputed, absolute king, and he's not a king by by means of tyranny. He's He's not a king like any of these ancient kings. He's a king who simply comes forward, and he's a king by virtue of the truth. And he says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So who is his kingdom made up of? His kingdom is made up of people who are free. They're people who freely, they don't come because he tyrannizes over them, that there's two possibilities. There's the anarchy of doing what's right in our own eyes, and there's the tyranny of being dominated by God. No, what he says is, I'm the king, and I'm the king by virtue of the truth. Therefore, his subjects can be what? Free. When people become his subjects because it's just the truth— There's no need for coercion. You see, the the experiment of the Torah to make a people with no immediate coercive king that would be voluntarily good, that the leaders would lead and the people would follow willingly, that was an impossibility. Jesus said he came into the world to testify that he was creating that people. 
that Jesus would be the one real judge. He would be the Savior. He would be the one that he would gather a people to himself and he would bring rest to a people by means of being the judge or the Savior that testifies to the truth and gives rest to his people. And, and here's, here's a bit of good news related to that. Lex and I were having this conversation. One of the fun things about being the pastor is I got to read through the whole book of Judges in one sitting this week, which is a little depressing, but it was also nice to be able to read the Bible. And um, I was talking to Lexi about this. I said, you know, w- one of the secrets to having a big church is when the pastor knows how to speak to hurting people. Because here's, here's, here's a dirty little secret. There's a lot of hurting people in the world, Right? Everybody feels like, feels like a victim, right? Everybody feels like they've been hurt. And so if you know how to speak to hurting people, it, you, can, you can make a big church. And I was like, you know, as I read the book of Judges, I was like, you know, I think it's supposed to be church for bad people. Like, I mean, it's mostly self-inflicted hurt in the book of Judges. I mean, like, it's, it's one thing to be able to speak to hurting people, but it's got to be more than that. It's got to be people who are hurting because people have hurt them or— They've hurt others, or they—like, it's this big, wicked mess of people who are going to prostitutes, and their one son from their love concubine in one city is killing their 60 sons in another city, and you've got the—you know, it's crazy. It's morally nuts, right? And yet, I mean, how are we going to have a church in 21st century America where, I would argue, generally speaking, people do whatever they can get away with— that's right in their own eyes. Like, if you don't have a church for bad people, I just don't even know what we're doing, right? And I mean, honestly, am I more like Gideon or like Jesus? Right? We better get this straight, right? I'm a whole lot more like a Jephthah or a Gideon. I mean, not even that good. I'm not, maybe a shave was whatever, or Ehud. I'm left-handed at least, right? But like, these like these failures, and, and, and here's, the, here's the, the positive side of that. If you go to the book of Hebrews, there's this chapter, and it's sometimes it's called like the hall of faith, but it's the section where the author of Hebrews is saying, here's what real faith is. Faith that like God can sink his teeth into. It's like real faith. It's like, it, it, it's the real deal. He's like, and he goes through, he talks about Abraham, and he talks about all these, Rahab, and he gets through, and he kind of gets to the end, and he goes, look, I don't really have time to talk about much more than this. He's only barely, hardly got to the book of Joshua. He's like, I don't have time to talk about Gideon, and Jephthah, and Barak and Samson, who, or the kings or the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and brought victories, and, and you're like, whoa, 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 there, tiger. Did you ever read the story of Samson? Like, this is a guy who basically goes out womanizing, gets angry, and kills people. Right? But there are these places in Samson's life where something happens— and he—and it says that the power of the Lord comes on him, and he has—in fact, at the very end of his life, right, they've gouged his eyes out, he's blind, they bring him out to the temple of Dagon to make fun of him, and there's like 6,000 Philistines in there, and they're all laughing at them, and these are all the sort of rich and powerful, right? And they put him in, and, and Philistine architecture had these central pillars and then these auxiliary pillars, that's the way they built stuff, and they put Samson on the two pillars. Smarter things have been done, right? And he prays—it says in the Bible, he prays to God, and he says, he says, God— I pray that you'd give me strength and that you would kill me with the Philistines, right? And he pushes them down. And everything comes down on everybody. And Samson brings— And Hebrews says, that's faith. Now think about that. That is what screwed up dude. Samson, 
And this is a guy who all evidence demonstrates, practically speaking, cared nothing for his calling in God. Did everything wrong. Everything. Tries to marry like five foreign women, right? And yet, he's in the stinking hall of faith. Right? Because when Jesus is king, he counts his faith, faith wherever it is, whenever it is, wherever it happens, in terribly screwed up lives that could actually be written. I mean, some of you guys, your lives could be written in the book of Judges and it wouldn't look literarily weird. Am I right? And yet, that might have put you in the book of Hebrews, for all that we know. Don't give up. Don't fall into anarchy. Know that for us, we have to press into what God is and recognize that in order, if we don't obey fully, we will fully fail. We've got to have that in place in our hearts. But we also have to know that these radical failures who at some moments in their life, they recognize that God was king. That whenever they recognized God was king, God is king. And they lived like it. And things happened like it. And for a lot of these guys, their lives are meant to be seen as tragedies. But there are these moments where they were heroes. And the only way you and I can fulfill the command and promise in the book of Joshua, when God looked at his people, he says, listen, you go and you be strong and courageous. And don't be terrified and don't be discouraged. You live out this thing that I've given you. You live out this thing that you believe. The only way that happens is if we recognize that we have to obey all the way to the end. That not to, not to fail to fully obey is going to be to fully fail. And that to recognize the only way to find the motivation for that, the only way to be on that trajectory, the only way for the, for the rest of our lives to be pointed in that direction and to be that kind of heroism is if we recognize that there has always been a king in Israel. The question is whether or not you'll acknowledge it. There's always been one who was king, and there was one that came to testify to the truth that he was king. And he said, anyone who will listen to that truth will listen to me. King Jesus. And, and if you—you need that king in a judge's world. And the book of Judges is a, a lot more like real life than what's on TV. And if we're going to be prepared to live in it, we better be able to find the king that those people think was absent in it. Let's pray. Father, um, man, it is hard for us to want to really want to drive out fully our idols. And the idols of the people we live among It's very difficult to want to do that It's very difficult to want to be humble It's very difficult to not seek the means By which our neighbors find comfort And power and affirmation And to really find those things fully in you In your way No matter how roundabout they are It's very hard for us Father, will you please help us To so see King Jesus The way he should be seen That we would be careful to obey fully in everything to look to you and you only for blessing. Not that we would be raised above our neighbors, so that, but that we would be able to love our neighbors. And so that we would experience the promise of rest, of peace. 
and so that you would, you would count faith in us. And see us as righteous before you, not because we're better than Gideon, but because we, we trust in the one who is king. And we pray that you, that you would just turn around our toilet bowl ending and lead us into something beautiful, something good, something strong and courageous, something that when other people look at it, they will acknowledge that there was a king. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.